0: And good morning, church family. Really glad. Well, thank you. A couple people are awake. Um, Really glad you guys are here this morning. I know uh, it's a a long weekend, so a lot of people are traveling. It's also uh, COVID and the flu and other things are spiking in our community. Seems like a lot of workplaces have been hit with it. And so um, the fact that you guys are here this morning worshiping with us together and and opening up the word of God, I'm so thankful for that. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Continuing on. Uh, where, we picked, where we left off last week, uh, looking at the last part of the book of Acts, specifically wondering what does it look like to be a church that is sent out into the, into the nations, a church that is sent out from beyond these four walls and interacting with the world. What does it look like to be the church in real life, <laughs> to go out uh, and, and interact with the world? And so uh, this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, says this. After this, uh, now this is, uh, Paul was in Athens proclaiming the gospel. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently from Italy with his wife, uh, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue Crispus the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision do not be afraid but but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people and he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names on your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. He drove them out from the tribunal. After they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him uh, in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Synchrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under oath. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that, that your word reveals your promises to us, God, that you communicate to us through scripture, uh, and you tell us exactly what you want us to know, Father, that, that in your word, by your word, you communicate to us the, the hope of eternal life in the gospel, God, you, you communicate to us the, the joy of following you, God, you communicate to us the promises that you have promised to your people, and God, we look forward to the day when all of those promises come to fruition. God, we pray that, that in the meantime, our hope, our, our steadfast hope would, would be on you, God, that our eyes would be focused on Jesus and would not look away, and we would be totally uh, entranced following after you. Holy, we pray that our time in the Word this morning would mold us and shape us in the image of Jesus, and we would leave better than when we came because of our time in the Word. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Do you guys know the phrase uh, "being put through the ringer"? Right? It's a phrase that's used uh, when referring to a, a series of bad things happening one after another after another. It just seems like nothing is going right. Well, let me—we uh, all know what it's like to be put through the ringer. But let me tell you about a guy um, named Samutu uh, Samotu Yamaguchi. This guy was put through the ringer. Right, so this guy was Japanese. He lived uh, on a. Uh, one of the south islands of Japan, but he worked on uh, one of the main islands of Japan for Mitsubishi. And he went on this three-month work trip doing kind of outdoor labor on uh, the main island of Japan. And he was away from his wife and kids, a uh, wife and infant son for three months. And it was, a you know, I was doing hot in the middle of the summer, hot work outdoors uh, away from his wife and kids. So he's not having the best time, right? He's already doing work that, that is a little tedious, a little menial, and it's outside, He's away from his wife and kids, so already things are not going well, but he's just about done with his three-month trip, right? He's, last day or two, and he's checking out of uh, where he's supposed to leave, and he's going to leave the, the yard that he was working in with Mitsubishi. He's going to leave uh, on August 6, 1945, in the city of Hiroshima, and he, uh, he's walking out of this, after three months of grueling work, walking out of this job, and he looks up and he sees a plane, dropped something with a parachute on it, uh, and two miles away from him, the first atomic bomb ever detonated in a city, detonates in Hiroshima. And he quickly dove into the ditch that was right next to him, and the bomb, the blast came right over him. Uh, He managed to avoid any debris, anything that came against him. He was uh, severely burned, caught a lot of radiation. But two miles away from the center blast, he managed to survive the first atomic bomb dropping at Hiroshima. Now, that's a bad day, right? That's, that's a really bad, that's an understatement to say that's a bad day to be clocking out of work after you completed your three months. Like it wasn't at the beginning, you know, like before he went to do this three months of hard work. Like it was at the end, and whatever he was working on was gone now. And so it was three wasted months away from his wife and kids, and he just survived an atomic bomb uh, after getting severe burns. Well, he, he recuperates a little bit after a day of trying to figure out what to do next. He uh, decides to get on a train and go back home because he needed treatment for his burn, So he goes back home, he gets treatment for a day, and the very next day after he gets home, uh, he's asked to go into the office at Mitsubishi back in his hometown uh, to explain. He's, I mean, he's still covered in bandages, but he's asked to go in and talk about the atomic bomb, what they're dealing with, what they're looking at. So he goes into town, he, and he says goodbye to his uh, wife and infant son, goes into the office, and he's sitting down, and he's talking to the executives of the company about the atomic bomb in his hometown of Nagasaki on August 9, 1945. And right outside of his window, literally as he's telling the story about the dropping of the atomic bomb in Hiroshima, he looks outside the window and sees a big flash of light. Because two miles away from him, again, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Nagasaki. And he quickly dove out of the way just in time to avoid the glass shattering in the office, sending debris everywhere. He managed, because of the way the city was set up, he managed to avoid any further burns. But it did the, the wave was so big, it blew the bandages off of him. Uh, And so he quickly gets up, uh, collects himself, runs back home. He sees that his house is is partway collapsed, but his wife and child survived. They were further away from the blast, getting him burn ointment in a different town over. Um, And so his wife and child survived miraculously. He survived miraculously. But this guy, in the span of a few days, uh, survived two atomic bombs within two miles of being uh, to these atomic bombs. Those are bad days. Like, that's being put through the ringer. Just... Just for reference, there have only been two atomic bombs ever dropped on civilian populations. And he was at both of them. Within two miles of both of them. Like, that's a, that's a bad collection of days. That's being put through the ringer. Most of us have never endured two atomic bombs. Uh, but most of us do know what it's like to feel like our world is burning to the ground. Like, we do know what it's like to be put through the ringer. To go through this, this series of, of bad days and bad events, and they just seem to pile on top of one another. They just seem to accumulate one after another. It seems like nothing you do goes right. Everything that you try, no matter, what your, uh, no, no matter your best attempt, everything you try seems to go wrong. Uh, you, everyone knows what it's like to be, to be put through the ringer. And some of you here this morning, like that's you right now. You feel like everything is going wrong for you. Like you are being put through the ringer today. And, and it's bad event after bad event. It's stressful moment after stressful moment. It's all of these things that are compiling to bring you anxiety. Like you feel like you're being put through the ringer today. And can I tell you that if that's you this morning, the Apostle Paul knows exactly what you're feeling like. Like the Apostle Paul is right there with you. Let me remind you of the last two chapters in the book of Acts, where we've been up to this point. The Apostle Paul is doing exactly what God has called him to do and going to preach the gospel of people and plant churches where no churches have been planted before. Right, so that's that's what Paul is doing, and he, in chapter 16, he goes and he preaches the gospel to Philippi, the city that the gospel has never been preached to before, and he, he sees some people come to know Jesus, they plant a church there, but after a little bit of time and being in Philippi, Paul gets dragged before the courts, he gets beaten with rods, thrown into prison, and then asked to leave the city. So he collects himself, he makes sure the church is okay, and then he goes over to the next town of Thessalonica. And he's in Thessalonica for three weeks, preaching the gospel, proclaiming Jesus. People get saved, a church gets planted, but after only three weeks of preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, the Jewish religious leaders there get jealous, drag him before the courts, and they force him out of the city of Thessalonica after only three weeks of being there. So he moves on over to Berea. The next town over, and he goes and proclaims the gospel. People get saved, a church gets planted, but after a short time of him being there, the Jewish religious leaders from Thessalonica come on over and kick him out of the city of Berea. So then he goes down to Athens. He goes and proclaims the gospel. And he's, he is forced to stand in front of the leaders of the city, the, the uh, thinkers of the city, and defend Christianity in front of them. And he sees some success. Some people come to know Jesus. A church gets planted in, in Athens, but the majority of the people that he's defending himself to, presenting himself to, make fun of him because he believes in the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul leaves Athens. Like, that is a rough stretch of ministry. Like that, that is, things are not going well. That's not going to be on the, the front page of any Baptist journal. like the Things are not going well at all for Paul. Like, there are some good successes. Churches were planted, but, but there are no rousing successes, and he gets kicked out after a few weeks of every city that he's been to. Like He has to be frustrated. He has to be feeling like everything is going wrong. It doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter how, how hard he tries or how many good arguments he makes. He keeps getting run out of town of every, at, at, at best, if not beaten and thrown into prison. <laughs> Paul knows what it's like to be uh, to, uh, thrown through the ringer, put through the ringer. But that's where we pick up in verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Luke introduces us to a couple people here in verse 2. He says, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native, of Pont- a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was the same trade, he stayed with them, uh, stayed with them and worked, for they were, his, they were tent makers by trade. So these are two people that Luke introduces us to. They're names that, if, as you read through the New Testament, they're going to be important names to just see. Um, they don't play a huge role in most of the story of the New Testament, but, but Paul references them pretty frequently in letters. Uh, their names will pop up a couple times more in the book of Acts. Um, so these are just good characters to know. Um, what we know about them at this point is that they're of Jewish descent and they were kicked out of Rome with all the other Jews. We don't know at this point if they're Christians, uh, but Luke is a little vague here. We know a few verses later, later on, uh, I didn't read this yet, but a few verses on by verse, uh, verse 18 and verse 19, like we know that by that point they're Christians. They're doing the work of the Lord. They're helping out. That becomes obvious later on in chapter 18 at the end, starting verse 24, like they're helping to correct People thinking about Jesus, like they are clearly Christians later on. Whether they're Christians here or not, I don't know. Either way, Paul seeks them out, and he finds them. And it, it, Luke includes this interesting detail when he says that they have the same trade. They were all tent makers, so they decided to, to go into business together, to make tents together. To me, that is a fascinating detail in chapter 18 because it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be that important. Like why would Luke tell us that Paul was a tent maker. At this point in chapter 18 we have known Paul for a good chunk of chapters and never once did, did it did it did it come up that he made tents. So why would Luke tell us at this point that he was a tent maker? And that he sought out Priscilla and Aquila so that he could work with them to make tents. Why would Paul tell us that? I and mean, why would Luke tell us that? I think it's because we get a glimpse of the fact that Paul is finally settling down and getting peace. He has been put through the ringer. Luke knows all of the stories that he just told. Like, Paul comes here, a few weeks later gets kicked out of the city. Paul comes here, a few months later gets thrown into prison and kicked out of the city. Paul goes here, a few weeks later he gets a, a, an attempted murder, stoned to death, and gets right back up, goes back to the city, moves on. Like, like we get all of these stories back to back to back to back to back of Paul being uh, starting churches and getting kicked out of cities. But here this is an example where Paul makes his way to Corinth and he starts working. Like that, he is established in the city of Corinth. He finally, after being put through the ringer for months and months and months and months, is finally has a place where he can just settle down and work. He's finally putting down some roots a little bit and, and making a trade. We see that continuing on in verse 4. He, was make, he didn't abandon the rest of his work. It's not like he decided, all right, enough of this being a missionary, I'm going I'm to do tent making. Uh, like verse four, it says, he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he, he was a bivocational missionary, uh, making tents so that other people didn't have to support him. And then he would go out and he would proclaim the gospel to synagogues, to Jews in the synagogues, and, and to people in the marketplace like he'd done everywhere else he'd gone. He's proclaiming the gospel in Corinth, but he, he's, he's staying there. He, he, there's finally a a glimpse, like a a little bit of hope, that maybe he won't get kicked out immediately of this city. But that's what we get to in verse 5. Silas and Timothy, Paul's co-workers, they arrive in Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. So here we go again like for the the upteenth time in a row paul is proclaiming the gospel to jews in the synagogues and they oppose him and they revile him and they want nothing to do with the message that paul is proclaiming like does this sound familiar it it probably sounds overly familiar and luke knows that it sounds overly familiar because every single city that paul has been to it seems like he's preaching the gospel to the jews other than Berea, every single city, he preaches the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue. They get mad and kick him out. Here's, here, it's, it's happening again. Paul gets up. He's proclaiming the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue. The Jews oppose him. They revile him. And Paul has this, this strong moment here where he wipes off the dust of his sandals and he says, you know what? I'm done with you guys. I'm going to go proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And while this is a, a big, strong moment for Paul and he's stepping up for himself and and defending his ministry, and going out and proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, you you have to understand what Paul is feeling here. Because while there is some strength, there is some, some confidence here, at the end of the day, this is the ninth, tenth city in a row that Paul has preached the gospel to the Jews, and they've rejected him, opposed him, reviled him, and the previous eight or nine kicked him out. So Paul is feeling desperate disappointed, probably. But Imagine, put yourself in that situation. You're doing exactly what God has called you to do. You're proclaiming the gospel planting churches, and yet you, you, you make your way to Corinth, and it, it seems like you're finally going to be able to stay somewhere for a little while, plant a church and really help it out, get it going, and, and now, once again, the Jews that you are presenting the gospel to are opposing you and reviling you. Like How frustrating must that be? You guys know what I'm talking about where, where things are going wrong and then it just seems like more and more things go wrong. Like when it rains, it pours, right? You just keep things getting added on again and again and again and you're, you're crying out like, what did I do to deserve this? Like, can nothing go right? You can, we can understand what Paul is feeling here. I think sometimes we, we paint the, the, the Bible characters as if they're, they're unfazed by anything that's going on in the world. Like they're just full of endless resolve and endless strength and confidence. But, but you have to understand. And Paul, and other times in Scripture, it shows um, that Paul likely, likely suffered from depression at different points in his ministry. And this is, this is one of those moments it has to be weighing on him. Things just keep going wrong. And if, at this point in his ministry, he's probably expecting to get kicked out of Corinth at any moment. Charles Spurgeon was one of the uh, most famous preachers in the 1800s. Uh, he was a megachurch pastor before megachurches existed. Like, he was a pastor in London. Uh, his uh, London Metropolitan Tabernacle housed 5,000 people um, every single Sunday morning. Like, massive, uh, read internationally all around the world. One of the two most famous preachers of his day. Uh, and for about 50 years before and after his time, like he, he, was, uh, he is wildly famous. Well, Charles Spurgeon uh, had frequent bouts, bouts of depression, even with a, all of the wildly uh, successful ministry that he had from our metrics, our standards. He frequently had what he referred to and what St. John of the Cross referred to as dark nights of the soul. He just felt like things were going wrong, even though on the outside, things seem to be going right in his mind, like things just keep compiling and things keep going wrong. And he's, he's struggling, he's, he's heartbroken, he's, he's uh, frustrated by everything that's going on. And, and I can, we can see that a bit here. And, under, and, and if Paul is feeling that at all, like we can understand that. <laughs> because he doesn't have the outside metrics to go with it either. Like things are going wrong. Verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, uh, this is a note just like the rest of the cities that Paul has been in. People come to know Jesus, a church is planted. Praise God. But what we would expect from Corinth, like the rest of the churches, that Paul had planted in the rest of the cities that Paul has been in, is that Paul is about to get kicked out by the Jews. That's what, we're, that's what we expect. And that's probably what Paul expects. There were some that believed, but verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city. Who are my people. So, at a time when Paul is frustrated, when, when things keep going wrong in his ministry, when, when he is being put through the ringer and, and everything seems to be compiling and, and it seems to be happening again, once again, he's opposed and reviled by the Jewish leaders in this city and he's probably expecting to get, to get kicked out. Jesus comes to him in a vision and he says, Go on preaching the gospel, no one's going to harm you. He makes Paul a promise says, go on proclaiming the gospel. Nobody's going to harm you. And look what it says in verse 11. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's another little detail that Luke adds. All of these little details, the fact that he was, he was a tent maker and he was starting his craft, the fact that, that he uh, it was stayed there a year and six months, these Seemingly little, insignificant details. This is Luke pointing out the fact that, that God is following through on his promise. right? That Paul is, is able to set down roots and, because this is different than every other city he's been in up to this point. Right? He's not, he didn't get kicked out after a few weeks. He didn't get kicked out after a few months. A year and a half later, he is still there proclaiming the gospel, strengthening the church that he founded there in the city. And there's a reason that line Immediately follows the promise of God. Where God's promise says, keep on preaching, I'll be with you. No one's going to harm you. Here's the thing though uh, a promise is only as good as the promise maker's ability to keep it. A promise is empty and worthless. If the person making the promise has no ability, to keep that promise. There's something that uh, happens a lot when someone goes through uh, pain or a traumatic uh, injury. Uh, someone will usually close to that person to try to console them will come up and say, hey, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. All those are comforting, kind words. They are not a good promise. Because the person making that promise, saying everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be fine, you're going to be okay, has no ability to make sure that they follow through on that promise. Like They have no capacity to make sure that everything's going to be okay. They have no capacity to make sure everything's going to be fine. And so that promise is an empty, hollow promise That is, it is kind, it is comforting, it is a good thing to hear, but it's not a good promise. And there's a reason that That nurses and and a lot of doctors are are taught that they're not allowed to say that. Because it's not a good promise. I think a lot of times when when God makes a promise, we, we treat that promise like someone coming up to us and saying, hey, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. It's a comforting word, something that we like to hear but there's a question in our mind of can God actually follow through on his promises? Can God actually do what he said he's going to do? There, some of us are, uh, you know, look at the market right now, and some of you are, are looking at retirement or you are retired, and you are basing your entire retirement on, on what the market is doing. You're relying on that money in the market to, to, to uh, stabilize your income and to, to support your retirement, and the last few months, this entire year, has been horrible in the markets, and you're looking at the market, and, and while you know that God promises to provide, while you know that God promises to be there for you, and to support you, you're looking at the markets, and, and because of the stress of the situation and the reality right in front of your face, it's easy to say that, that maybe God can't follow through on that. It's easy to have doubts on, on whether or not God can actually follow through on the promises that he's made. And for Paul here in the next few moments, it's going to be easy for Paul to doubt whether God can actually follow through on his promise to make sure that he's unharmed. Because look with me at what happens in verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Here we go again. Once again, Paul is dragged before the city leaders, and he's put up on trial, and they wag their fingers at him, they point their fingers, and they say, this guy has been preaching false gospels, this guy has been proclaiming things that are not lawful for the Romans, this guy has been saying things that we should not obey, we need to punish him, we need to jail him, we need to beat him, we need to kick him out of the city. Once again, Paul is brought before the tribunal, and he is so familiar with this at this point. I mean, it's happened in city after city after city after city. And you know what's happened in every single city? He's been punished and kicked out. So God has made him a promise and said, no one's going to harm you. Keep on proclaiming the gospel. And now he's once again dragged before the tribunal. And with the tribunal right in front of his face and the familiar the sound of Jewish religious leaders condemning him and asking for for prosecution like when that is coming against him it would be easy for Paul to wonder whether God can actually follow through because the situation looks pretty bad like 10 times out of 10 he's been kicked out of the city 10 times out of 10 he's been beaten and abused like there's never been a moment in his ministry where this hasn't where this has gone well and faced with that reality, faced with what's going on, it would be easy to wonder, can God actually get me out of this? Can God actually help? Again, you and I know what that's like. If you've grown up in church, if you've been a Christian for a few decades, like you know some of the promises of God, you know what God says, and, and, you, and if, you, if I were to ask you, you would say, yep, I believe God always follows through on his promises. But there are plenty of times that our lives don't look like it. There are plenty of times where, where our lives, uh, by the things that we say, the things that we do, it looks like we are questioning whether or not God can actually follow through. For me personally, there was a, uh, a promise of God, a, a calling of God to pastor. A calling of God to, to preach the word, to, to lead uh, the, the people of God like that was a calling on my life that had been placed on my life, and for over a year, uh, I was praying that God would open the door to 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 lead to preach to teach to to serve a church somewhere and I, I, for over a year i 've been praying for God to open that door, knowing that that was a promise from him for me and like knowing that it 's what he had called me to do beyond a shadow of a doubt I, I think most uh, if not all of the promises of God are here within scripture and and we need to be a little careful about saying God promised me this or that outside of the pages of Scripture. But I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had called me to preach, that God had called me to lead and teach a church. And so I was crying out to God, saying, God, what are you doing? And while I firmly believed that God would follow through on his promise because he had called me to teach, he had called me to serve, he was going to open the door for me to do that, the prayers that I prayed occasionally and the steps that I took occasionally showed that I was trying to do it on my own. It, it, it caused me to uh, to question whether or not God actually would follow through. Whether I would just need to take things into my own hands. We see that in each of our lives. We know God follows through on his promises, but sometimes the situation in front of us looks so dire. The situation in front of us, look so desperate or it looks so insurmountable that we've decided we need to do some other things. We need to look for other solutions because we don't know if God can follow through. Paul is brought before the tribunal. He's accused before the tribunal. But look with me in verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, again, that's never worked yet. And Paul is great. He makes great arguments. All of his points have been on point, uh, but he has never once successfully defended himself. Uh, and so his, him opening his mouth probably would have continued the trend from, from every other city he's ever been in. Uh, but as, as he's about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words, and names, and your own law. See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of those things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. When God promises that Paul is going to be okay, when, Paul, when God promises that he's going to be with and that no harm would come to him in the city. He just needed to go on preaching and go on proclaiming. Even though he stood right in front of the tribunal, being accused by the Jewish leaders like he had done in city after city after city, even though the situation looked bleak, he is about to defend himself and God follows through. Because Gallio, the proconsul, says, I'm not going to take this case. This is just a religious matter between you guys. I'm not going to take it. See to it yourselves. It has nothing to do with us. God followed through on His promise. The next uh, verse, seventeen, it says they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, beat him in front of the tribunal. Gallio paid no attention to these things. Now, Luke, uh, the book of, of Luke and Acts, those two books that Luke wrote, are, are masterpieces in, in ancient Greek. Like they are light years ahead of the rest of kind of the uh, ancient Greek texts that we have. They are wonderful masterpieces. Uh, but this is one instance where Luke is a little unclear about what exactly happened. Like, we don't really know who the they are <laughs> in verse 17, the ones who seize Sosthenes. More than likely, what Luke is describing here is that after this whole thing takes place, this whole, uh, this whole debacle, and, and, and uh, Galio, uh sends, the tri- sends them away from the tribunal, there are angry Greek people who are mad at the situation, who are mad at the, the Jews for trying to uh, come against Paul, who is a Roman citizen. And so this wave of kind of anti-Semitic uh, hatred wells up, and they just grab the first, the most prominent Jew that they saw in Sosthenes, and they, they beat him. But we're, we're very unclear, kind of what that verse means. But the result, at the end, of the end of the day, is that Paul and the church were unharmed. Paul and the people of God were untouched by the, religious leaders, by, the, by the religious leaders and by the, uh, by the Roman authorities there in Corinth. Like God followed through on his promise. Look with me, continuing on in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At St. Crea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow." Again, that's another little strange little detail that is thrown in there by Luke, where uh, Paul had apparently been growing his hair out for a vow, and now that he's made, his, made it to where he wanted to go, he cut his hair for the vow. What that more than likely means in Jewish customs is it's a thanksgiving vow. So it's directly in reference to the fact that God kept his promise. And so as a thanksgiving to God, he kept a vow, he grew out his hair, he did other things um, that were special, kind of like fasting for the Lord, Uh, And he did those things, and by the time he made it to the next town, he cut his hair because the vow was over. He He had given thanks to God. But it's all related to the fact that God was faithful. God kept his promise. No matter how difficult the situation seemed, no matter how stressful it was, no matter how familiar it was, and how poorly it had gone, every other time Paul had ever faced any of these situations, like every single time he had been kicked out, but this time God kept his promise to protect him. God kept his promise to keep him safe. This is what I want us to see this morning. When God makes a promise, he delivers. When God promises something, he always delivers. I want us to think about the promises of God for a little bit. And recognize what kind of promises God has made for you. Because it's easy for us to to forget the promises of God or to think that, That God can't follow through on these things. I want you to think about Romans chapter 8, where Paul says that God works all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That is a promise of God. That he works everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That no matter what happens in this world, nothing falls outside of his jurisdiction. And he either causes things to happen or allows things to happen so that he can work them all for the good of those who love him. And are called according to his purpose. What a remarkable promise. And what a hope-filled promise. That whatever we go through, there is good that will come from it. Because God has a good, a great design. A remarkable, fantastic plan. But what an easy promise to forget or to doubt when you're going through something difficult. Like how many times does something seem so horrible? So dramatic, uh, traumatic, so, uh, so painful that it's easy to question whether or not God can actually make anything good out of it. But God has promised that he will work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And when God promises, he always delivers. Think about another promise that that when we can cast our cares, our burdens, our anxieties, our stresses upon him. In Philippians chapter 4, it says, Do not be anxious, about anything but in everything, in prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What that says is that when you are stressed and anxious and worried, if you give those things to the Lord, if you present those things to Him and say, God, these are yours, He will give you peace. He will give you rest that will guard your heart and your mind. How incredible. What an uh, an incredible promise. That when we're stressed and anxious, God is willing and ready to give us peace if we cast all of our burdens and our cares upon him. But what an easy promise to doubt when things are stressful. Like what an easy promise to forget about when we are anxious and we are faced with all of the things that are going wrong in our world. But God has promised that he will provide peace if we turn the things that are stressful and anxious over to him. When God promises, he always delivers. All of the promises of God in Scripture, uh, uh, all of the promises for the people of God are uh, are, are all centered around this idea uh, that we see in uh, Acts 18 for the promise that he gave Paul. Uh, Notice what Jesus says in verse 10. Do not be afraid, go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. All of of the promises throughout Scripture for the people of God are all tied back to the fact that, that God is with his people. That God is on the side of his people. That if you are a follower of Jesus, God is with you. God is on your side. If you, the church, God is on the side of his church. And so he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is willing and ready to give you peace and joy if you would turn over the things in your life that are stressful and anxious, uh, anxiety-inducing over to him and to trust in him. Let me give you one more promise. Perhaps the greatest promise of all, we see it in First Thessalonians. Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians Chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica, and they have, they have lost a lot of people. There are people who have died, there have been people who have been put to death, and they are wondering what happens to Christians after they die. Like Is this, is this the end? Paul says in verse 13 of, of 1 Thessalonians 4, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This we declare to you for, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and with a cry and a command, with the voice of an archangel, and all the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we... Uh, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This promise that Paul writes that God is proclaiming is that He is, that Jesus is coming back. And on that day, by the death and resurrection of Jesus, we will have eternal life. And we will be with God as a as returned spirit and body together. We will be with God for all of eternity. We place our faith in Jesus. That means that nothing can come against us that's going to shake this promise. Back to Romans 8. There is nothing that can come against you that can take you from the love of God. There is nothing that can come against you that can remove remove you from God's righteous right hand. God has promised that if you place your faith in Jesus, if you trusted in him for salvation, there will be a day when you will be resurrected from the dead and you will spend eternity in the kingdom of God celebrating all joy and all life and nothing bad, nothing wrong ever going on. You will celebrate the eternal life in the kingdom of God. And that's an incredible promise and enough of a promise that nothing that comes against us today should shake us. That's why our, uh, the, the back half of our mission statement is, is that we are living for eternity today. Like what an incredible eternal promise that there will be a day when we are standing before the throne of God and we are worshiping him for all of eternity with nothing but love and joy and peace, no pain, no sorrow, no sin, and that one day no, uh, n- there's nothing that can take us away from experiencing that joy and love because of Jesus. So this morning, if you feel like you, you, you have been put through the wringer, if you feel like things are going poorly, if, you think that, if it feels like things are avalanching and snowballing and more and more things are coming against you, let me tell you that God has promised that he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that he will provide peace for those who turn over their, their uh, anxieties and their stresses to him and that he will one day, uh, Jesus will return. And if you place your faith in Jesus, you have eternal life in him and will be part of the eternal kingdom of God. And what God promises, he always delivers. Let that give you hope today. Trust that God is going to deliver what he promised. And allow that trust to carry you through whatever it is you're going through. And if you're here today and you're like, that's not me, things are going okay, Eventually, they won't. Like, we all know what it's like to have bad days, bad moments, and a, and, a, and a snowballing effect of more and more bad moments all compiling onto each other. And when that happens, know what God has promised. And keep your eyes on Jesus, knowing that what He promises, He always delivers. Fixing your eyes on the fact that we have eternal life in Jesus. Some of you today. Need the hope of that promise. Some of you today have never placed your faith in Jesus. You have never trusted in Christ for salvation. And so you don't have the hope of the promise of eternal life in Jesus. But God has promised that if you will trust in Jesus, if you will put your faith in Him for salvation, you can have eternal life. And nothing, nothing in this world is ever going to shake that. That's you this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, in just a second I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And while we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. I would love to pray with you, and then we have people who would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus, and to have the hope of eternal life, to know the promise of God, that God is always going to be with you, and that you will spend forever in the kingdom of God. Do not leave here this morning without that hope. Do not leave here this morning without that promise. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the the hope that your word provides, that that you are a God who who promises good things to your people. You are a God who who promises to love us unconditionally, God. You are a God who who promises to provide joy and and peace and life to us, uh, everlasting, eternal life in 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 your kingdom. Father, I pray. I pray that we would never forget that that our eyes would be would be fixed on you. Would be firmly rooted in eternity, waiting the day that we are going to experience the fulfillment of these promises. God, I pray that that when we go through hard times, when we when we struggle, when things are difficult, God, I pray that we would cling to you and your promises that we would trust in you, knowing that everything that you have everything you have said every promise you've ever made is going to come to pass that you are working things for good that you do provide peace and that one day we will be with you for all of eternity and everything will be made right father i pray for anyone here who does not have that hope i pray father today would be the day that they place their faith in jesus Precious, holy name of Jesus that we pray.